Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Gary Love, who's head of horticulture at Lanier Technical College. Um, Gary, you've had lots and lots of years in the horticulture field. You've managed greenhouses, you've owned your own, and now you've been teaching for something like maybe eight years. How did you get into horticulture to begin with? Um, when I was 12 or 13, my mom and dad moved us out to a, uh, a small farm in, in Roswell, Georgia, uh, if, if, I were, if you knew what Roswell is now, you'd kind of scratch your head. What do you mean a farm in Roswell? Um, but we did have one, and it's still there. And they uh, we, they, they raise horses, and, and the byproduct of horses is horse manure. Um, I happened to get a hold of a Reader's Digest gardening book that was my grandmother's. Um, she, my grandmother, uh, subscri- uh, subscribed to every reader's digest book there was and that happened to be one of them anyway it piqued my interest um i had horse manure i had a bunch of concrete blocks that were left over from our barn that we built uh so i made a raised bed and actually pulled around with making compost tea using the horse manure and an old 55 gallon drum grew a bunch of veggies had a good time with it um at that time horticulture was not offered in high schools um like it is now, so I kind of, you know, lost interest once I started driving the car and, and, and the other things that teenagers do. Then a few years later, when I was at Georgia, um, I noticed they had horticulture as an elective. I said, this thing's kind of fun, and, and it was fun. I, I really liked it. I liked the hands-on component of it. Um, <clears throat> and then after graduating, I went on to uh, to work at what was then George's largest greenhouse, Alpharetta Greenhouse, which was a major supplier of bedding plants and poinsettias and mums to all the big box stores at the time. And, and from there, I had my own nursery. I worked at a botanical garden. I worked for Van Bloom Gardens, growing perennials. And I ended up at uh, eight years ago at Lanier Tech teaching horticulture. So, and, and I also grew water plants. Uh, Helped a place called No Longer Bound, an alcohol and drug reju- <clears throat> rejuvenation place with their greenhouses. And so I've done a, a few things here and there. Yeah. Now, so over at Lanier Tech, you're teaching, you've got a big greenhouse over there, and this is the week, the main week that you start sowing seeds for your spring plant sale, isn't it? Correct, correct, yeah. We, we, now, uh, a lot of people, go ahead. No, no, we've got, uh, I guess about three weeks ago we started um, with some things. So I've got some people that want some early things. What's happened in this area is we've, we've got a lot of uh, organic and, and non-organic vegetable producers that are helping with the uh, homegrown vegetables, local mm-hmm. produce, and um, they're asking me to do some starts for them. And I'm, I'm doing it as organically as I can. We're using organic soil and organic soil essentially with the potting soil means that they've left out the inorganic fertilizer and they've left out a wetting agent it's basically the same soil it's a peat perlite type mix uh, then we're using organic fertilizer also to, to start these plants but anyway long story short we've, we've had to start sowing a little earlier for folks growing vegetables in high tunnels now, some people are afraid to start plants from seeds, but it's really pretty simple if you remember a few key things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's, um, 
use a good soil. It, it's always in, in horticulture, whether it's seed germination or or planting in your garden, perennials. I mean, the soil is is the base. Uh, so we like to use a good, clean soil. There's there's several brands out there. Um, I actually found. I think our budget at school was always being slashed, so I'm getting more, more and more thrifty with things. And um, Walmart actually has some pretty good starter soils, believe it or not, made by Chippy. And they have one I found that I've had good luck with. Um, I don't remember the name of it, but if you look at the ingredients, it's sphagnum peat moss and coconut core. And it does a. I've had real good luck with it. No, that's the that's the Walmart the stuff you found at Walmart or something. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a Jiffy product, and, and Jiffy is a, a well sure. name in horticulture. Um, and something at uh, the um, instructional level, when I'm teaching students, I like to show them a lot of different things. Um, if I was in the industry, I would find one really good way of doing it and sticking with that. But in the classroom, not only do I have uh, what we call plug trays or seedling trays filled with the Jiffy mix, I also uh, we're also experimenting with an old product called Jiffy Sevens. Sure. Which are, which are they? It looks like a cookie before it gets wet and it blows up. I don't, that's always fascinated me when you put that little tiny Jiffy pellet in there and it's so compressed and it starts absorbing water. And then it springs wide open. And, and that's one of the things that's really commonly found for people that are listeners that haven't grown from seed before, and you go in to look for seed starting supplies in your local big box store. That's one of the products that's fairly easy to come by. And some of them even come with a whole kit with a little heat mat and the plastic trays and a plastic dome over the top of it. I, I yeah, like those to play with. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, Walmart had those kits without the heat mat, and for I think it was like six bucks, I got a tray, and the, the tray actually holds water, which in this case I like, and it has the plastic dome. We have heat mats at the school; they're like a heavy-duty rubberized affair. Um, and between those two, the tomatoes we sowed three weeks ago—I mean, they're they're going like gangbusters, and, and it's. Again, it lets the students say, hey, there are different ways you could do this. Oh, yeah, people will find all kinds of things. Last year when I was snooping around at the big box stores, I found um, trays full of just the core mix. Um, and it did the kind of, same kind of thing as a Jiffy 7 pellet. You put the liquid in, put your water in, and it starts to expand. And those I found were quite good for doing uh, peppers because it was very well oxygenated and some of you some of our listeners that might have tried growing things before one of the thing, problems that some people have is that it gets the material gets too wet and it doesn't dry off and then they have root problems with it and that that stuff with just the coconut core was worked out really well for that where sometimes I found the Jiffy 7s stay a little bit wet do you find that to be true also? Um. Yeah. Again, it depends how much water you give them. Actually, I had almost the opposite problem with the fifty sevens, and that some of them were drying out quicker than the other ones uh, because the way they're spaced out in that tray, there's a lot of air air around each one. They tended to dry out 
quicker. Um, it, it, it's something I it, they would. I'm, I'm pretty good at gauging. That, that's one thing you have to do with seedlings is you have to once that seedling starts to the pop germinate, you've got to keep a real, real close eye on on watering because uh, if it, that little seedling is at its most vulnerable when it starts to pop out that seed. And sure. It can, it, and it's it's like a little baby. I mean, you can you can lose it right away. So it's almost you have to check it. Well, in a greenhouse, we're checking it constantly, especially if it's a sunny day. Um, so the water the watering is, is is critical. And and you're right. If you overwater it, I, I imagine more seedlings are killed overwatering than underwatering. I, I think that that's the biggest single complaint that I get from people, that they died from, you know, when I look, I take a look, that they've damped off because they didn't have good air circulation and they were kept too wet. Or the other thing that I find from a lot of people is that they don't have them under bright enough lights and they flop over. Exactly, exactly. And exactly. people can overcome that. Now, you've got the greenhouse. Do you also do supplemental lighting in there or is um, your greenhouse bright enough? It, it, it is bright enough. Um, I've thought about doing some su- supplemental lighting. Uh, I would like to experiment with the new LED lights that are out. Mm-hmm. They use a lot less power. Um, one of the things I'm careful with, we mentioned that those starter kits come with a plastic dome, and I'm, I'm real careful once those seeds start to germinate uh, about getting those things off because I think that can lead you can get too hot in there. And that's something else, too, is once those seeds start to pop and they start to grow a little bit, you want to get them off that heat bath. Um, yeah. I, I found that seeds, seedlings grow a lot better. They, they need the extra heat when they're germinating to get them to, come, to pop out before the seed rots. But then if they grow when they're growing off, if they're growing off a little bit cooler, that seems to help them, doesn't it? Yeah, it hardens them off. It hardens them off. And also... Um, this happened to me two days ago. Uh, I, I got to work a little late, and I had to meet somebody. And, and usually I run into the greenhouse first, and I check the seedlings, you know, if I need watering or not. And I got into a situation where I couldn't get to them until afternoon, and I came in, and I had about half of my Cherokee purple seedlings were, were laid over. I mean, it looked like they were dead. Um, so gave them some water, a couple hours three hours, they pop right back up. And that's actually a good thing. It toughens those seedlings up. It's almost like a boot camp for plants. Um, and, and a lot of people, when a lot of students, um, they're always one, wanting to water wilty or plants just starting to wilt. And I remember something somebody told me a long time ago, and this is especially true of pansies, is that you can see a plant that's starting to wilt, and sometimes you, you you want to water it, but it may be the wrong time of day to water it. it may be late at night or late in the afternoon. You almost have to slap your hand, he told me, and say, hey, let's just wait. We can water it later. In other words, wilting is not a bad thing. You can let plants wilt. Uh, and, and, again, to me, it toughens them up. Now, you got to be careful not to go too far because at some point they're not going to come back or they're going to come back burnt. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, but as you say, a lot of people are afraid to do that. And I think more people are going to water at the very first sign of a little wilting, and that can get you into trouble because what 
we don't think of as beginning gardeners is that plants need the oxygen at their roots as much as they need water. And if they don't have it, they will die also. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, and, oh, another thing about that seeds, too, is um, some seeds need dark to germinate, and some seeds need light. And sometimes you have to hunt around for that information. Park seed yeah. is really good. Park seed is really good um, about, on their seed packs, they will tell you darker light. And, they and also have a book that they published years and years ago that's one of my go-to books. It's called Parks Success with Seeds. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, it's a great book. And they, in addition, they also have, at least they did have, in, when they sent you a seed order, they sent you a little pamphlet that had all that information. But for, for vegetable growers, I think probably the two that they're going to think of that need light to germinate are lettuce and dill. Most of the rest of them that I've found will tolerate the darkness. Right, right. And what I like to do um, is coarse vermiculite. Well, I always get a bag of coarse vermiculite and sprinkle that on top of the seed. What, I'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll put the seeds on top of, say, the Jiffy 7, or if we're using a, a flat, we'll sprinkle them on top of that. We've actually got a couple of machines that, that can sow seed. One's called a needle seeder. Okay. Um, We've got to take a quick break right now, but we'll yeah. come back and talk about that right after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today we're talking about growing plants from seed with Gary Love, who is the head of horticulture at Lanier Technical College. And right before the break, Gary was telling us about that he uses vermiculite on top of the seeds once he's got the seeds sown, and you sprinkle a little bit of vermiculite on. Now, a lot of people are not familiar with vermiculite, so tell them what it is. 
Vermiculite is an expanded mineral product that's real light. Uh, if you've ever heard of mica, it kind of reminds you of mica. It, it's almost like a, a lightweight sand. It's used in insul- for insulation in industrial settings. Uh, you also, it's also a major, or not so much anymore, it was a major component of a lot of, of potting soil mixes. It's sterile. It's inert. And again, that it's very lightweight. So, and it also, it'll hold moisture, which is another reason I like to use it on top of seedlings. There are, typically you can find a fine vermiculite at uh, garden centers. Uh, it's kind of hard to find the coarse, but the fine vermiculite will work also. Uh, again, you sprinkle it on top of the seeds. It provides a, uh, um, oh, a moisture barrier, for lack of a better term. It's not really a moisture barrier. It's holding moisture on top of the seed, and it uh, provides that darkness that a lot of seeds need to germinate. I haven't used vermiculite in years and years and years. There was, um, and, and it was even off the market, I think, for a while because they found that a lot of vermiculite products were being mined in an area that also contained asbestos. Yeah, and that's. I think it was. They were mining it in Wyoming or someplace like that. And so they took it off the market, but the stuff that they're, they've got back on the market now for people that want to go back to using it, um, they seem to have tested that, and it's it's fine to use again for gardeners. Um, some people like to use sand over their seeds too, don't they? Yeah, they do. You know, sand is, is probably more readily available. Or you can just use more potting soil too. That's something else you can do more the same potting soil. I always like to just use a little bit of potting soil, but when I plant the seeds, then I poke them into the required depth um, with a pencil most of the time, unless they're things like lettuce seeds that you want on the surface of the soil, and then I just kind of pat them in with my hand. Yeah, yeah, that I like like playing in the dirt. I like feeling the the potting mix and the seeds and, and stuff like that. And for people that haven't tried growing their own from seed, it is so much fun. There is nothing more special to me than seeing those little hairpins come out of the soil, like when you're growing a tomato plant and the hairpin rises up and then it will pop its little seed cap off and it will stand upright. And in a couple of months, you know you're going to have a plant that's four or five or eight feet tall and producing more tomatoes just from that little tiny seed. That's just yeah. that's just a hoot and a half. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It, it's a... Uh... It's about as, as satisfying a thing as you can do, I think. And, and there's also, when you go to, if you go to buy plants, a lot of times, I've noticed in this area, it seems like there's there's one vegetable plant grower that dominates this area. And you, the select, they have an okay selection, but you can't, the, the you can get a lot more different plants if, if you buy seed. Um, no, those seed catalogs might have 100 varieties of tomato, where if you go to buy a tomato plant, you might be limited to a choice of what, maybe 20? If and that. May, yeah, yeah. I mean, I may, it may be like 12. So you get a better selection of plants. Um, and, and truth be told, they're probably the plant that you grow is better in a lot of ways in, in that it's acclimated to where you're going to put it. Or hopefully it is. And it hasn't been shipped for hundreds of miles. Yeah, And yeah. You're, you're not buying in 
I know most greenhouse growers are very careful not to allow any disease or insects into their greenhouses. But what sometimes you know, the reality is when you have thousands of plants, you might miss a white fly. Oh, exactly. And that white yeah. fly is going to going to multiply. I can't. The worst garden experience I ever had was with a store-bought plant, and I didn't realize this. Was, I was a fairly new gardener, and I didn't realize that what was on the back of that leaf was a white fly because um, it wasn't moving. It was just you know sitting there, and that those couple of little white specks on the bottom um, turned out to be hundreds and hundreds of white flies by the end of the season. It was such a disappointing thing. If I hadn't already gardened with my mom and known that that wasn't normal, I think I would have thrown in the trowel right then and just said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on the flip side of the equation, too, is you don't know what those plants have been sprayed with to prevent the white flies. And, and that's that's another thing. If you're growing it yourself, you you know, if it, like most people won't even spray plants, uh, young vegetable plants. So you know that already. You don't know what's on that plant at the store. Yeah, when you're growing a dozen or two dozen or, you know, even like I do, a couple hundred plants, you're out there looking at them constantly from different angles. You know what you've got, what you don't have. And I can't think of a year that I've had more than just a few aphids on the plants. And the year that I had a lot of aphids, it was because I over-fertilized Oh, and then yeah, you know, yeah. and then the weather turned warm and humid, and the aphids just had a, a good old time. But you know, a little bit of insecticidal soap will take care of that. Okay, so key things for people to know about um, growing their own from seed is to start with good soil, and by good soil that means something that you don't want garden soil. And Gary, I don't know if you've found this to be true, but a lot of the stuff that you get at the garden center is sold by weight. And I have never found those to be satisfactory. Have you? No. no are... Good point. Good point. It's usually the ones that are sold by the cubic foot. Is that what yeah. you're thinking? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that, stuff sold by volume rather than weight, it tends to be a better quality product. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah, most of the stuff by weight has, has field soil in it. You want to avoid that. Again, I like things with either with peat moss, with the coconut core, uh, with with perlite in it. You mentioned a minute ago pepper seeds. It's, it's funny you said that. I was we, we were getting ready to sow some pepper seeds yesterday and have somebody that wants some early peppers. And the last couple of years, I've had trouble with peppers. With with uh, the germination rate has been awful. Um, and I was just so I was googling around about peppers, and I came across. Two different sites mentioning that uh, people were having better luck with coconut core and pepper seed germination. That's what I found. And I think that maybe for a couple of reasons. One is if you feel the coconut core versus um, damp peat moss, or we were talking about Jiffy mix, Jiffy 7s before, um, the coconut core feels a little bit warmer. I don't think you're losing as much heat to evaporation. And, of mm -hmm. course, peppers like to have it very warm. Peppers will germinate most rapidly at between 78 and 80 degrees. That's where they're comfortable. And even if you're using a heat mat, you know, when you've got air moving around up above it in evaporation, that's cooling it just a little bit. And I found that they're a little bit of a pain in the patoot if, if they're not warm enough. Right, right. Peppers, peppers need it warm. And that's the other thing you need for, for 
seed germination for most things is, is, is the heat. And we mentioned the heat mat. Uh, it, a heat mat is a very wise investment if you can do your own seeding. I mean, otherwise, it's, it's a hit or miss thing. Yeah. Uh, well, it, yes, some people have really warm windows or really good places to put it. People, uh, you know, when I was growing up, people would sometimes put their um, – there's flats of seeds. My mother did this. She would put it in the furnace room. We had an insulated furnace room. The flats would go in there until the first seeds started germinating, and they would pop right out. Um, we, when my husband and I got married, I used to put them up on top of the water heater at the apartment where we lived because that was a little bit warmer than the rest of the place. Oh, yeah, that's um, a good idea. One thing you don't want to do, though, I've seen it recommended in a, in a couple of books, do not put... Um, your seed tray on top of your TV. <laughs> Ask me how I know this. <laughs> we had a big old TV that my husband's grandmother had given us, and I just you know put seed tray on top of it. And then one day I was watering, and I didn't realize that I was um, had over watered it a little bit, and it all of a sudden whoosh, <laughs> and, the, and the back of the TV popped out. That, that oh, wasn't no. a lot of fun. That wasn't yeah. a lot of fun. I don't well, guess you could do that with an LED, but I know a lot of people, um, they have DVD players and stuff like that that stay on and stay warm. If you're thinking about using that, don't. And there are an awful lot of unsafe ways to grow grow from seed. Uh, I've heard of people using um, using electric heating pads and things like that. They're really not designed for wet, even the moist heat ones. They're not designed no, for the no. kind of drips that you get or the kind of pressure that you get, you know, from a flat of seedlings underneath. And a lot of people may say, well, you know, a heat mat costs a lot of money. It really doesn't when you consider, I think my newest heat mat, which was a, a sample that I got, is probably 12 or 15 years old. No, they'll, they'll they, last. A good one will last. Yeah. Just, you know, put it, um, roll it up. Or put it flat in, in a dark space. Don't leave it out, you know, in the sun all summer long. But it saves you money. And a lot of people think they have to have a lot of heat mats because they're doing a lot of seeds. But really, you figure a week, sometimes not even that long, to get the seeds germinating. And then you move your next tray over onto the heat mat. Yeah, the, the mats we use at the school are about 22 inches wide by 4 feet long, and you can get five flats on that. That's a lot of seed. It is. That's a lot of seed. And even a lot of the, the there are quite a few smaller um, mats available that you can get for the, for the home gardener that are maybe, I, I guess mine, one of mine is 12 by 24. It's just a little bit, it's just about the length of a flat um, and about the same width. That One of the things I'm going to do is post a link to my friend Walter's website. He made a an interesting germination a bottom heater out of a couple of light bulbs in an insulated box, and um, and I will post a link to that on our Facebook page. So there are lots oh, of ways that you can get heat to something. And I even came across an interesting one that somebody had sent a sample of to me. It was kind of basically like a styrofoam cooler, like Walter's, um, with a little bit of shielding in it and then a, an insert on top and used, a, I guess, a 15-watt bulb and kept things nice and toasty. Oh, yeah, that'll work. We, When my wife and I were starting our nursery, we actually had one of those little plant stands in our kitchen. Uh, we didn't want to spend a lot of money heating the greenhouse, and we, so we took this plant stand, took a 
a piece of plastic, made a tent over it, and then I took a, a, a metal bucket of water in the bottom, and I put a a device that, that it's a horse watering trough heater. It keeps the watering trough from freezing. Uh-huh. Stuck, stuck that in there, and actually you got this nice steamy effect, and we we popped the, the seeds using using steam, and that That's worked pretty well. That's an interesting way to do it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought about that. But whatever people are going to use like that, they need to get something that is designed for use around water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We don't, we don't want our listeners to get zapped. Well, that works. The, the commercial germination chambers actually use that same principle. There's a stainless steel trough at the bottom with an electric mm-hmm. uh, hot water heater element. Yeah. There's one made by the, uh, I think it's the Seed Easy Company out of out of Wisconsin. I kind of stole that idea from them, but yeah, you're right. You got to be, you got to get the right equipment. Maybe I shouldn't be talking about that. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll just give them the warnings. Yeah. We need to take yeah. a quick break right now, but I want to remind you that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we'll be talking back right after this. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Today we're talking about growing plants from seed with Gary Love, um, head of horticulture at Linear Technical College. And Gary, right? Before the break, we were talking about um, people using heat mats and various things. And, again, we just need to remind them, use something that is designed for use in wet areas like an official heat mat. Don't try to get yourself into trouble by um, rigging your own. You know, you don't want to – I don't want to lose a listener to things like that. But some t- some plants don't really need bottom heat to grow, do they? No, not not really. There's some plants that'll that'll come up right away. I'm thinking of the, a lot of the brassicas seem to just pop right up. Of course, you're, yeah. you're growing those in the winter. And, uh, the broccoli, colored cabbage. Most of your cool season vegetables really don't need much bottom heat. And in fact, some of them can actually be slowed down if the soil temperature is too warm. Exactly, and you got to be careful if if you do have them on bottom heat and they sprout, then they're going to get lazy. And, yeah. and a lady seedling sometimes is a worthless seedling, so you got to be, again, real careful there. Um, I always try to I use save my heat mats for things like peppers and tomatoes. Peppers in particular, and I, I start my peppers about 8 to 10 weeks sometimes before I'm planning to put them in the ground. I guess we should talk about that, too, because people, a lot of people like to start their seed way too early. And I know that I would get the itch, you know, in the first warm day after a big, long snowfall or something like that, and I would just have to go plant something. But, and, and why you can, if you're only growing one or two plants, and if you have really good conditions, you can get away with it. Like, I used to start a tomato, usually in February, or tomato or two, and then I put them into deeper and deeper containers as they grew. 
But I had to fuss with them all the time, and I had to use um, grow lights on them. And that's even though I got my first tomato by Father's Day, usually, it just wasn't worth the effort. And for most people, starting too early is is a death knell for the seeds. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, you hit the nail on the head, you've got to fuss with it a lot longer. And if you happen to, uh, you kind of change to it also. It's kind of, uh, you've got to be there tending it. You can't go anywhere. Yeah, and you have to use, I, I have not seen anybody be really successful in starting very early unless they've got grow lights of some variety. Um, I'm, my favorite way of lighting plants is to use fluorescent shop lights and use the cool white tubes because the cool white um, is in the same temperature range, which means color temperature rather than heat temperature, for vegetative growth on a plant. You know, some people think they have to have these big halide lights that the marijuana growers use. You really don't need to have that, do you? No, you don't need to have that. And you, what you, um, the way you're doing it, that's probably you get the most bang for your buck. A lot of times those grow lights, uh, not the metal halide ones, but they make those fluorescent grow lights and fixtures and things like that. And they, they tend to be, uh, to me, they're overpriced. So just getting a regular shop light like you're doing in, in the cool white tubes or are for, for the money the best thing you can do. But and that's what you write to about the light. If you start it too early, you don't have enough light, then you get these stretch again, you get these stretchy seedlings that uh, are, are not as viable. Uh, granted with tomatoes you can plant them deep, but still it's uh, you're better off just waiting. Just waiting. You get a lot better plant. Yeah. So st- people are going to start their peppers eight to ten weeks ahead of the time that they're going to plant them out. Tomatoes, I usually do about six weeks ahead of planting out. Um, a lot of people I've noticed want to start their cucumber and squash and melons inside, and that can be a problem, can it? Yeah. Um, they come up so readily in the soil. Uh, you're better off waiting. And then also the quality of, the, of those type of plants, those cucumbers, squash, melons, that are grown in a pot and you, you transplant it, they're, to me they're very fragile plants and, and they're prone to breakage. It, it's just, it's, to me it's not worth the money. Get the seed, put it in the ground. And, and I say that um, when I had a, a greenhouse operation, I, I did that a few times because people just, they just wanted those type of plants. And I kind of felt like I was robbing them because yep. the speed is so cheap, and I had to charge so much for the plant. It was, it was easy money for me. But it, it was, again, yeah, yeah. But it's it's not that good of a plant. It's better you're better off putting the seed in the ground and letting it come up naturally because it come up right away. Yeah, as long as the soil is warm, and I think that's where most people have problems when they want to direct seed outdoors. They think that since the air temperature is warm enough, that the soil temperature is warm enough for these seedlings to grow. And very often in the springtime, that's not the case because we can have a bunch of warm days, but if you use your soil thermometer and poke it down in the ground, you may see that your soil is still only at 55. And as we talked about, a lot of the plants need really germinate better at 70 degrees, between 70 and 80 degrees. Correct. So I know a lot of people have trouble when they direct so. You know, they'll put their cucumbers out really early and it's cold. Uh, absolutely, and that's something, too. Um, when we talk about temperatures in, in terms of germination, we're talking about soil temperatures, not air temperatures, but soil temperatures. And there is a website uh, 
the Georgia Department of Ag or the University of Georgia has, where they've got sensors located all around the state that measure soil temperature, and you can go online and see what the soil temperature is. It's, it's mainly a tool for the big ag producers, um, but you can use it also. Yeah, I've noticed that quite a few states have those. So if you're in one of the states not in Georgia, um, check with your State Department of Agriculture website or just Google around and see if you can find it. Or call your cooperative extension service. They very often will be able to direct you right to the site. And you're right. It's mostly big ag, but I noticed that there are an awful lot of sensors at golf courses, too. So if, if somebody has a golf course near them, um, they can probably just call them up and ask. I'm sure that people, the golf course people wouldn't want to be bothered every day, but a, a, an occasional call wouldn't be bad. Or yeah. go out and buy a soil, temper, a soil thermometer. They don't cost yeah. very much. Yeah, and um, the soil thermometers are like in our germination. It, where we're sowing those seeds, I've, I've got a couple of those. In, they're inserted into the soil, um, and I've got them set up around the greenhouse. I'm always telling students, hey, we've got a this is what you're looking at. It's the soil temperature that counts, not so much the air temperature. Right, and if you can get a recording soil thermometer, that's even better because it is astounding to me how much the temperature can vary from uh, morning, from one morning to the next morning, just as the sun heats it up during the day and the top interest of the soil gets warm or it's warmer in the greenhouse, and then at night the temperature drops. But, you know, an English friend of mine who is a Royal Horticulture Society judge told me that you can always tell when the soil is warm enough for your, to grow your tomatoes when you can sit on, your, on the soil with your bare bottom and not freeze. <laughs> and that good. works out pretty well. Because, yeah, you know, if yeah. you, you can be on a, on a walk on a nice day and stop to rest and you think the soil is nice and warm. Well, it is the first minute that you sit out there. Um, and then after a while, the cold starts seeping into your bones. And, and people need to know that when that happens, the plants aren't going to be growing very well either, with some exceptions, like your cucumber or your, or excuse me, your your cabbage and your broccoli and things like that but even they like it a little bit warmer okay so we talk about temperature and light and um have you noticed how many times people have um we've talked about growing in in containers in the jiffy sevens and things like that and you mentioned plug trays but do you still see like i do people recommending using eggshells for starting seeds um, I still see that, and I just yeah. want to tell people, just don't do it. That container yeah, I, is so tiny. They're oh, setting yeah, themselves yeah, up for heart, heartbreak. Yeah. And yeah, eggshells eggshells don't drain either, unless no, you punch no. a drainage hole in them. Oh, yeah, it's all it's something I'm always preaching to my students. It's drainage, drainage, drainage. No matter if it's a plant in the ground or if it's a plant in the pot, it's all about drainage. It's all about air to the roots. Um, yeah. And speaking of speaking of that, speaking of weird containers, what we're doing a uh, whole little fun experiment. The um, those new coffee makers with the what do they call them? The K cups. Yeah, the K cups. K cups. Yeah, I've got I've got people bringing them to me. Um, I've I've kind of we kind of inherited one. I've, I I don't like the concept because I see all that plastic going into a landfill. 
Sure. Uh, it's, it's just, I read a quote yesterday, like if you, if you stacked all the K-cups that would go that were used in a year, they would go around the earth so many times. But anyway, we're, um, we're actually taking the K-cups. There's already a little hole in the bottom where the coffee goes through, mm-hmm. and we're, added, we're, we're adding the hole, and we're doing some experiments where, A, we leave the coffee in and throw the spent coffee grounds in, and we're putting more uh, potting soil in, and then we're doing some where we take the coffee out. Anyway, long story short, we're trying to use those as a, as a little seed-starting pot. And they actually fit Go ahead. I'll be anxious to see how that works out for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, they actually fit perfectly into a 50-count plug tray. So they, how cool. Because they, they're kind of tippy without that mm-hmm. tray. So that's, that's one of the little crazy things we're, we're trying out there. One of the things we're doing with our, our horticulture program um, is, is sustainability. is not just a buzzword with us. We're trying to uh, make it part of part of the process and, and reusing things. And I think we need to do that. And I'm a big fan of reusing things. For a long time, I would collect all the coffee cups left over from Sunday school and, you know, from the coffee hour in, in between services, and I would bring all of those home and punch holes in them. You know, the styrofoam coffee cups work just great. Fill them up with potty oh, yeah. mix, yeah. And, and I keep the temperature nice and even. Um, I've used... Not the egg shells, but egg cartons, the foam ones, and punched holes in there. They're a little bit deeper. If I'm uh-huh. planting, if I'm, I use the lids on those, not the cups, because then I just plant seeds in a little row. You know, I make a little furrow, and I fill after I fill it with potting mix. And that's a little trickier for people. That's how we always did seeds when I was growing up. We would sow them in big flats, um, and, and not individual containers. And then we would prick out the Seeds, seedlings after they came up and then we transplant it. But that's an extra step. But it's something that people can do. Um, right, right. And, and again, I was talking about the variety of things I'm trying to expose the students to and, and sowing in those open flats. We're doing that also. Um, it, it's kind of a, that's what kind of a lost art, taking those, those that mass of seedlings and, and, and replanting them. And so I want the students to know how to do that. Now, do you, when you teach your students how to do that, do you use the dibble method and take out individual seedlings, or do you break out a handful of them or a scoopful of them and then drop them on a sheet of paper? Um, what we what we do is, is is take a handful of them and actually I actually show them. I spent years doing that at, at the commercial greenhouse. You actually break them off and you, you kind of kind of stick them down into the final container. It's hard to describe how to do it. It's, it's kind of a... Well, you kind of just tease them apart is what I would yeah. do. Yeah, and, and it's and for somebody that's just trying to be extra careful with their plants, it, you might cringe watching it because uh, those, those plants are more resilient. Those seedlings are more resilient than you think. They, they really are. We need to take a quick break right now, but we'll be back right after this. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school.
While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today we're talking to Gary Love, um, who's head of horticulture at Lanier Technical College. And one of the things that he's doing with his students right now is sowing lots and lots of seed. And, Gary, you were saying that um, we have some of your students learning how to do the individual plants in gang pots as well as doing uh, regular plug trays. And for those that don't know what a plug tray is, um, they're – how would you describe it, Gary? They're They're kind of little – well, it's uh, a hunk of plastic with a little bun- bunch of holes in it, isn't it? Yeah, a bunch yeah. of depressions in it. Yeah, most of your standard nursery flats are around 11 inches wide by 21 inches long. And what they've done is they've taken that. Imagine it's a piece of plastic that big, uh, 11 by 21, and some of them might have 84 individual cells in there. And each each of those cells would be about half an inch by half an inch by anywhere from half an inch deep to maybe two inches deep. Um, Some trays might have as many as 512 cells in there. Most of the time you're going to find 72, 84s, 144s. So it's like having a little uh, tiny individual plant in each one. And that particular invention, those plug trays, revolutionized... uh, the greenhouse industry over the last 30 years in that it allowed for automation. In other words, there are some big greenhouses that uh, people are not transplanting those plants. They actually have transplanting robots. Um, Google Metro Lima greenhouses, they're a big greenhouse. I think they're the nation's largest greenhouse. They're located above Charlotte. And they've got some... Um, really good YouTube videos of their operation. It, w- it will blow your mind the amount of automation that goes into producing your plant. Um, I'll put that link up on Facebook um, for yeah. people so that they can take a look at it. It is just fascinating. Those vacuum seeders that pick up all these seeds and then poof, deposit them, one in each of the little um, filled plug trays, and then they go through and they water them in. And I'm just blown away when I see that because, of course, I'm old enough to remember back when everything was done by hand. Right, right, right. And, it, and it's when we, my wife and I had our greenhouse, we were kind of like the, the anti-automation greenhouse. We liked to, to advertise all, all our plants were handcrafted. We touched every plant. Um, but, it, again, it, it just amazes me the, the amount of automation that, they, that they've come up with. But, anyway, those plug trays, what we used to do was instead of having, uh, say, 84 cells 
uh, 84 plants. And sometimes you'll put two seeds in a, in a cell, too. I should say there's sometimes three, depending on the, on the germination rate. What we used to do was we would have, like, an open plant, and we would we would sow. There might be two to 300 plants in that open plant. And you would have to, when you went to transplant those, you would have to, like, we would scoop them up in our hands, um, dirt and all, and then you would, with your other hand, separate the plants and, and plant them. So it's kind of a tedious process. It's a real tedious process. Yeah, you really have to be doing that with a good friend or with some good music on, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it gets old really fast. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's fun for a while if you, if you can kind of zen out on something else or it allows you to think about something else. Um, I, I kind of miss doing that. Well, I, I, and I think most of our listeners that are only going to grow maybe 20 or 30 or maybe 100 plants, that's a, a really nice occupation because it gets you a chance to get up close and personal with the plants. You get to notice all the difference in the leaves and the stems, say, of different tomato varieties. They're all so different, or so many of them are so different. If you're growing, say, a Cherokee purple or a brandy wine, or some of the plants like a current tomato that has a really wispy foliage, they are all so different one from another. Yeah, oh, yeah, and hey, you know, that's something that's just real important. Uh, if you're doing a lot of different things, with something just as important as that tag saying, hey, what each tomato plant is, you've got to make sure you keep those tags straight. Otherwise, you don't, you may not know what, what Hey, what tomato is this? Mhm. Yeah, and I think a lot of people. I know I didn't used to pay all that much attention to tags when I was just growing for myself, and and it was kind of fun to guess the, you know, guess the variety afterwards when I was planting it and say, okay, well, is this going to be a little short one that I can put in the front row, or is it going to be a monster heirloom? Um, but certainly, if you're growing more than just a couple, or you want to be sure get those labels and labels now are so inexpensive don't i implore you please don't go to your neighbor neighborhood garden center and buy a pack of them for 750 you can buy a hundred of them online or a thousand of them in big rolls and it will last right. you forever and ever and ever or, or um, it just makes me crazy when i go uh-huh. and see the the cost of some of the stuff in in garden centers and hardware stores and i really like to support our local merchants and but I don't want people to get ripped off either. Yeah, yeah. And you can reuse popsicle sticks or plastic knives, things like that, too, if, if, you're, into, yeah. like, if you're like me and you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, plastic knives was another thing that I used to filch from the wastebaskets at church. <laughs> uh, just because they made they made dandy level, labels, and you didn't have yeah. to worry about them. Uh, and plastic spoons, too, depending on what you're growing. So it all worked out really well. One of the things we haven't talked about um, is talking about fertilizing the plants what do you recommend for fertilizing seedlings um i like you want to use a, a, a low dose of whatever you use um i've been really keen on a product that used to be known as daniel's now it's known as nature source uh, again it, it's, it's a commercial product i think they have a retail line too it's an organic uh fertilizer made from soybean seeds and it has a very low, I'm mean, using their organic version, which I believe is like a three, two something. Um, and it, it doesn't scare me to use that at, at, a, at, a, at a normal rate, about 50 parts per million. Um, there are, you remember Peter's fertilizer? I don't, is that I still around? Peter's. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Peters is Peters is now Jacks. Okay. Um, but yes, that's another. That's one of the kind of the blue stuff fertilizers. Right. Now, do you right. recommend um, fertilizers with micronutrients in them, or um, just NPK? I, you know, like the uh, the Daniels I use, it does have some micronutrients. The key thing on fertilizers for seedlings is you don't want to overdo it. You want to right. you want to, you want your rate to be low. Um, again, read the label directions on that. Yeah. And and if you're using some of the brands that tell you to use a tablespoon per gallon, don't do that. No, If you no, look hard uh, on the label, they will usually tell you, you know, use a quarter strength. But you yeah, very yeah. often have to look very difficult, very hard on the label to find that. And one of the things that I learned from an orchid grower um, in town was that she followed, for her orchids, she followed the uh, practice of doing a, a weak solution weekly as part of her yeah, regular yeah. watering. Right. And and I found that that works pretty well with seedlings too. I'll mix up, mix up a gallon um, at the regular rate, and then I will pour that gallon as I need it. I will pour a quart uh, into another gallon and, and mix Correct. it with yep. water. So I'm getting yep. a quarter of a strength, and that works out really well. And, and the other thing you want to do with fertilizer is is kind of hold off until that plant actually has you can see the root uh, hitting the side of the cell. And it gets a good set of leaves on it. You don't want to fertilize too early, uh, and it kind of takes you back to potting soil. A lot of good potting soils will have a little bit of starter fertilizer, and so that's carrying the plant through. Now, if you're using a potting soil that doesn't have any fertilizer, uh, you might want to start with a real weak solution earlier in the game. Yeah, because the plant's got some energy that comes with it in the seed that helps right, it right. to start growing. And then shortly after the seedling emerges, those roots start taking up nutrients from the soil. But they've got, you know, a day or two's worth even in, in plain sand. Um, but then, yes, start fertilizing. Because you don't really realize it until all of a sudden you realize, hey, these plants look the same as they did, you know, two weeks ago. And then you notice their stems are starting to turn purple from lack of phosphorus and things like that. By that time, you've really set your plants back a lot, haven't you? Right, right, yeah, you, I think having that weak solution uh, early and often helps keep them up. You know, one thing I have I'm not familiar with, um, are there any retail, like, seed starter fertilizer solutions out there that you're aware of? Retail seed starter solutions. I haven't yeah. seen them, but I haven't, I haven't gone looking. I just use um, an organic fertilizer usually and, and let it go yeah. with that. Yeah, now, one more thing that people need to know when they are, after they've started their seeds, they've got their seeds, they've been inside where it's nice and warm, and I like to run a fan on them to keep the stems moving a little bit and, and help them harden off. But then you don't want to take your plants right out and put them right in the bright sunshine, do you? Uh, no, no. You want to put them in a shady spot outside if you need to. Hey, and the, the fan is a really good idea. That's something that we we learned a long time ago. Uh, with tomato plants, if you keep a fan blowing on them, it tends to keep them shorter. Our yep. biggest issue with tomato, we, you know, because we were growing thousands of tomato seedlings, is you've got to be really careful in that they would get too long and lanky for you to sell. Yeah. And at one point in time, you were allowed to use a chemical growth regulator, uh, which, thank goodness, you can't do anymore. 
So that fan idea keeps the air moving on them. Imagine along the seacoast, you see those, those pine trees that are hundreds of years old that are really short or up on a mountaintop where the wind's blowing all the time. Yeah, and, and you want that nice, short, stocky seedling to put in the garden. It may not be yeah. a foot tall, but on right. the other hand, it's ready to go. Its leaves are kind of close together. Um, it's, got, it's got all that energy packed into it And when you put it in there. Now, how long do you let the plants sit out? You said you put them out in the shade for how long? Oh, two to three days. You know, not long. It depends on the weather. It depends on the weather too. Um, yeah. And, and if, if the weather warms up, and then you got people wanting to buy your tomato plant, it's got to short circuit that. Um, yeah. Oh, the other thing about the fan blowing too, it keeps the leaves dry, and you have less chance for disease. Yes, that's very helpful too. Okay, so for most, for the average grower though, if they, you can put your plants out in the shade. Um, for a couple of days, bring them in at night if it's going to be chilly, and then gradually accustom them to the sunlight. Because you can, I, I've seen people take their plants right out of the indoors, and then they put them right out in the garden, and they just immediately get sunburned. They turn white or brown, and sometimes they even die. You don't want that right. to happen after you've worked so hard for your plants. Yep. yep. Okay. We're just about out of time for today, but I'd like to remind you that we do have um, America's Homegrown Veggie Show has a Facebook page, and I'll be posting links to this and some other interesting things. Um, I have a link to a how to build a plant light stand out of PVC. It's, some, it's like growing with Tinker Toys, and you can just put it together and grow. And I will put the links that Gary mentioned to Metrolina Greenhouses and some other good things on our Facebook page. You can always get a hold of us through the America's Web Radio um, email account. Just press the button and send us an email, and we'll answer your questions that way, or from my website at mrsgreenthumb.com. I hope you'll join us next week, and I hope you'll go out and get a packet of of vegetable seeds and start planting your own. We'll see you next week. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.